honor God and read his word as we read um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Tony, um, if you'll come up, I'll pray with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you um, again so much for um, for loving us and for uh, bringing us together this morning. I, I pray for my brother Tony as he preaches um, um, these words to us um, that he um, just that he let us see you um, and let us see what you have for us. Um, let your Spirit guide him, um, protect him from from discouragement, um, help him, um, and, and Lord help us as we uh, seek to understand better. Um, what it means to live life in you. Lord, we love you so much. We praise your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, the subject of love is one that is probably different for each one of us in this room. And so I want to start, before we get into this text, by just acknowledging that. Some of us would say we have lived lives filled with love. Um, we've had parents that have invested in us. We've had role models that have helped us along the way. We've had spouses that have been blessings to us. Um, maybe you, like me, have had a child that at some point has crawled up into your lap and looked up and said, I love you. Um, this text centers around the concept of love. That's where we're getting. But I just want to acknowledge as we start off that not all of us have had the same experience. Not all of us have had parents <laughs> that were perfect. Um, some of us went through uh, ab even abusive situations. Some of us um, have felt deep love for someone else and then lost it. And some of us have lived lives that were mixed. The good, the bad, all together. Um, that's probably actually most of us. And so as we go in, again, hear me, this text centers around the concept of love, but some of us may have warped understandings of what love is because of our experiences. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to try to get that cleared. But before we go into these two verses, you'll notice this is actually a shorter section than some of the last couple of weeks. Before we get into this, these two verses, we want to take just a few moments to kind of get the context. Um, have any of you ever seen like little desktop calendars that have like little cute pictures of bunnies or whatever? The idea is you go into an office job, you sit down at a drab cubicle, you're having an awful day, and to bring sunshine into your life, you look at a picture of a kitten, right? Um, well, well, they make, for Christians, for those of us who are religious, they make special desktop calendars just for us that often will have verses on them. Um, like, I can, you know, through all th I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so we, we sit down at our desk and we look at the calendar and we're encouraged. Um, this week I was looking online and I saw a picture. Yeah, Rich already knows where I'm going. I saw a picture of a desktop calendar that says, 
Um, if you will only bow down and worship me, I will give you everything that your eyes see. That was, that was the verse. 20 points for whoever can tell me who actually said that in the Bible. Yeah, it was the devil. Like, the devil said that. Okay, sometimes, sometimes if we take short verses and we don't look at the context, we can get really messed up. Because sometimes it's a quote from the devil. Now, this is not a quote from the devil, but still the principle is here. Let's take a look at the context. Let's back up just a bit. Um, in chapter 4, that was the, the chapter we've just been going through, we kind of saw a real battle, right? So Paul, the apostle who's writing this letter, has written to the Ephesians and the church surrounding ancient Ephesus, and he's heard wonderful reports where completely godless men and women have heard who Jesus is, and their lives have been changed. He's hearing reports of Christians, uh, new Christians, baby Christians, coming into the world and becoming different. But Paul also knows personally that even Christians, even those of us who have experienced opened eyes, even those of us who now look to Jesus and say, I follow him, I love him, that even for us, Paul knows from personal experience that there is still the tendency towards sin. Like, can I get a witness on that? Like, there is still the tendency towards sin in me, in you, even if you're a Christian. So at one point, Paul, the apostle, writes in a different letter that covetousness keeps springing up in him. Covetousness, that's where you are desirous of the things that other people have, their position, their possessions, and laments, who can change me? His answer is Jesus. But he knows personally the pull towards sin. He knows that old habits die hard, that sinful tendencies in us die hard. And so even though he's heard great reports out of Ephesus and out of the surrounding areas, he writes to them, to remind them to put off the old corrupted self, that is, that person that's them in their sins, and to put on a new self. Um, specifically, I want to pull out the verse in chapter 4, verse 24. It'll be up here on the board. He says, put off the old self and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul wrote, and he said, you have to put away the old way of life, you have to put on a new way of life, and that new way of life that you as a Christian are called to is one of righteousness, true righteousness, and holiness. And then the next section, he expanded upon that idea, what is righteousness and what is holiness? Because it's not what some of us might expect. Some of us might think the transfer from godlessness to righteousness looks like coming out of kind of old, sinful, dirty world and becoming like a monk in a monastery. Do you guys get that image? Like I once lived for the world, and now I shave my head, and I put on some brown robes, and I move up into the mountains, and I'm alone. Right? I am truly set apart for God. Um, you might think that being drawn into righteousness and holiness is wrapped up in, like, religious ceremony. 
the clothes we wear, the things we do. As if coming to God was wrapped up in candles and incense and in chants. But that's not actually what we saw. He said you're to be created in the, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he talks about things like being truthful, being gentle, pursuing healthy relationships, being giving instead of taking, having a posture of forgiveness towards those that have wronged us. Now, far from recommending that we all go off into a quiet, alone place, he says what righteousness and holy, holiness looks like is taking a long, hard look at our social life. How do we treat other people? How do we act towards other people? How do we think about other people? Again, in Christ, there is new life, but Paul has just spent a chapter telling us that that new life doesn't come automatically, like by osmosis. We just kind of soak it in, but that it's a new life that has to be put on. It takes some action on our part. And whenever it's put on, whenever we put on the new life, it's not merely an outward change, but it's, it's, a, it's a deep inward transformation. So words like love start to mean different things than they used to mean. God is interested in changing us inside so that we see ourselves and we see the world differently. Okay, so we come to Ephesians 5. There's going to be two verses here, and uh, in one sense, they sum up everything that we just said over the past few weeks. And so they're a summary of the content that we've just looked at, but they also point forward into the next chapter. And so if you could imagine this on the page, this is almost like the eye of the storm. The two commands around which all the other commands in these two chapters turn. And so this is, this is an important point that if we miss, we end up in odd places in both chapters. So let's read the verse. Verse 5-1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So in chapter 4, we saw that the new self was created in the likeness of God. Did you see that phrase? And so it was made to look like God. The language here is similar to that in the original bit of creation, how God made us in his image. That image, through sin, was kind of fouled up. We were made to look like God in a spiritual sense, and because of sin, because of rebellion, we no longer did. But the new self is a restoration of that. Now we're made in God's image again. We've been restored. And there's almost this idea that whenever people go through that change, whenever we start to put off sin, whenever we start to pursue God again, it's almost like we're waking up as a, as a group from a long kind of sleepy forgetfulness. Do you get what I'm saying? We are so used to living in one way, thinking in one way, that we don't immediately understand everything that we read in the Bible. 
We don't immediately understand whenever God says, love your neighbor, how to do that. Because my neighbor can be a doofus sometimes, right? And so it takes us a while. It's a slow growth. Our core emotions lie to us. If you remember from last week, we talked about putting off all anger and all malice. Like, so whenever someone does something obnoxious and we start to get mad, we're not supposed to live in being mad at that person. I mean, who here has been wronged by someone else? That's all of us, right? And what is the natural tendency whenever we've been wronged? What do we do? Like, you get this feeling in your gut, and you look at the person and you think, how could you do that? How could you do that? Our core emotions, our tendencies, lie to us. They tell us to grasp on to that and to not let it go. But here, we're told to be imitators of God. If we're going to look like him, if we're going to live like him, then we have to look towards him. Um, you may be asking, okay, Tony, where are you going with this? What are you trying to say? Um, this is the problem, is that by nature, we tend to follow the pack. Do you guys understand what I mean by that? Um, I watched a, a YouTube video a few weeks ago that was of this social psychological experiment. You like these, where they like play tricks on people to see what kind of silly things they can get them to do? What they did is um, they had this lady come into a waiting room. She thought she was there for a certain kind of medical test or whatever as a part of a study, but the real study was about what she would do in the waiting room. And so she comes, sits down, and there's all these other people around her sitting in the waiting room as well. And after about 45 seconds, there's this low tone. Beep. And at the sound of the tone, everybody else in the waiting room stands up. They don't say anything to one another. They don't make any motions. They just all kind of stand up and look forward blankly. And this woman is sitting there like, what in the world are all these people doing? Right? And then after a little bit, they all sit back down in unison. And then, about a minute or two later, beep, and they all stand up again. And she sits and looks around, and you can tell, you can see it on her face, how awkward she feels. And after about 10 seconds of hesitation, she very slowly kind of creeps up and stands up with them. And so the experiment continues on for another 10 or 15 minutes, and every time the tone beeps, now more confidently she stands up with everyone else and just looks forward. She's taken on the behavior of other people. Now this goes farther. They took everybody out of the room eventually except for her and new people who weren't in on the, the whole experiment came in. And whenever the tone went off, guess what? She still stood up. Even though all the other people were gone and the new people looked at her, were like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, we stand up with the tone. And, I mean, I'll get to the end of this. Minutes later, there's a room full of new people that are all standing up with the tone. They have no idea why. No one has told them to do it. But what they've done is they've come into an uncomfortable new situation. They're not sure how to act. So what do they do? They follow the pack. They just do what they see other people doing. And that is what we tend to naturally do. So whenever this verse 
says be an imitator of God, this is the point, it means don't be an imitator of the stuff you see around you. Whenever someone does you wrong and you start to let that anger fester in you, there is a tendency of people in the world to look at you and say, yeah, you've got the right to be mad. If I were you, I'd thump him on the head next time he got home, right? I'd get out the frying pan. Like, there's this idea that people around you are not going to be necessarily tuned to help you imitate God in these kinds of situations. And so what do we do? We go into an office that's full of dishonesty, and before long, we're dishonest. Even though we just read verses that said, be truthful. And so we're called not to take our cues from the world, from our culture, from those around us, but to take our cues from God. So that's hard. Can we acknowledge like how hard that is? Um, whenever I think of imitating someone in an uncomfortable environment, my thoughts immediately go towards on-the-job training. Any of you guys ever gotten a new job and had to go through on-the-job training? Like this is something we've all done. And so you go in and you have either a supervisor or some other kind of low-tier person who walks alongside you and they show you the ropes. And any of you guys like ever feel like someone just opened the water hose on you on those first days? Like you go in to learn and they just dump all sorts of stuff on you and you're trying to imitate the person leading you. You're trying to do your job in the way that you're shown, but there's so much to do and you're afraid if you mess up too much, what's going to happen? They cut you loose and then you're looking for a job again. And so whenever we look at this and we hear a statement, imitate God, and we know that our souls are wrapped up in this, that this is an important thing, and we know that there's such a long list of behaviors that are so unlike me that I need to pick up, there can be an anxiety that crops up. We get stuck in a loop where we stumble, and then we're afraid of what God thinks of us. Like we mess up, and out of that fear of what God thinks of us, we just end up messing up again until we're in a spiral and we reach a place where we've got kind of this darkness in our soul where we wonder how God could ever care about or like a person this messed up. Because we're not loving, we're not patient, we're not kind, we're not good. The important thing to see here is that if we see God as some kind of trainer who's looking to cut us loose if we can't pick up the job fast enough, if we look at God that way, we're seeing him wrong. Like, it's not true. That's a lie. That's not, that's not how God sees us. It says, therefore, be imitators of God, and then there's a comma, and it says, as beloved children. I told you love was at the center of this, and that love starts with the love that God puts on us. We are not trainees. We are not servants. We're children. And like children to parents, 
Um, we're to see them, we're to see God as, as, in this sense, like a role model. Not as someone we look to in fear, but as someone we aspire to be like. Uh, we've acknowledged that some of us haven't had the best parents, but I bet most of us in this room at some time have had someone that we've looked up to. Uh, for some of us, that's a teacher or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a nice neighbor. Someone that we've looked at and we've said, whenever I grow up, I want to be like that person. Right? Maybe it was a boss or a coworker that we saw that just seemed to be able to have life together. And we thought, I want to be like that person. And so there's not an anxiety to live up to. There's an aspiration to one day be like. And so we say, I want to be like you. And that leads into the feeling of, I, I want to be like you because that's what completeness feels like. That's what, that's what good life looks like. And then when we fail, because there's real love, because it's a, we're beloved children, what happens? How does, how's the response from, from a parent or a, a good role model to failure? It's help. Like if every time my son messed up on something that I wanted him to do, I just smacked him around, like that's, <laughs> he may be my child, but he's not a loved child. What a loving parent does whenever a child fails is we get down on our knees and we say, let me help you. And so if we're children of God, if we're beloved children of God, the idea is, is when we fail, we don't get stuck in a spiral of like death where we just get worse and worse. Rather, we're drawn into the arms of a loving God who helps us. And the help that he gives us, the love that he gives us produces more striving in us. Instead of fearing getting cut off, now we just want to do better. Because again, we've been shown an example of a loving father. And then eventually, we get some small measure of success. You know, one day, my daughter, you know, dumps the mix into the pot as we make pancakes. And she doesn't dump it on the counter, right? It actually goes into the bowl a small measure of success that then I, as a parent, get to encourage in her, and, and there's joy. And then that joy leads to even more of a desire of, I want to be like you. Our relationship with God makes all the difference here. We want to imitate him, but the, we can't imitate him really. We'll never get there unless we understand our position as his beloved children. We're loved, and so we can be changed because we're loved. The second command in this section that he gives us is like the first. In a sense, it's a restatement of the first. But it's also a natural outflow of the concept of be imitators of God. Um, we see God loving us as children, and that love kind of reverberates in us and pours out, driving our behavior. And so verse 2 will be up here on the board. It says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so we'll start off with just this first section. It says, walk in love. It's such a small statement, 
but there is so much wrapped up in this small, small statement. Walk in love. There are echoes of this in this, uh, in this encouragement that Paul gives us of a key moment in the life of Jesus. And so while Jesus was on earth, he was traveling around teaching, and at one point, while he was teaching, it says a lawyer or a scribe, like someone who is invested in the law of God, walks up to him and asks him, they say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And so they're saying, if there's only one that I can do, <laughs> like what is the most important thing for me to focus on? And Jesus actually quotes to them out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. The first part is this, is this little phrase that's called the Shema. It was this, this phrase you were supposed to repeat as a Jewish father over your children every night so that they would get this in their mind ingrained. And this is the phrase. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and mind and strength. And then he said, the second is like it. And he quoted Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the core of our religion. What does it mean to live as a Christian? You know, Jesus is the object of our worship. God is the object of our worship. But our religion, our behavior, the stuff we do, this is at the core of it. Everything that we do, everything that we do, should be connected back to do these two things. Our thankfulness and devotion and worship towards God, our love of God, and our deep abiding concern for the well-being of others. What does real love look like? What is love? Some of you started singing after I said that. Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? Real love looks like devotion and worship towards God and a deep, abiding concern for the well-being of others. That may sound foreign to us. There's a temptation to twist the verse here whenever we read, walk in love without taking in the context of what love is. Because in our culture, love looks different. Love is be nice, don't be a jerk. Um, love is supporting kind of the radical individual freedom of every person. The best thing I can do for my child is just to let them figure out life on their own. Love is an experience that happens to me, right? We talk about this when we talk about falling in love. It's an experience that happens to me. Um, we can see how different the society's view of love is in how we treat marriage. Like, I don't have to, I don't really have to spell this out to you, do I? Like, we marry because of feelings, and what happens in our culture when the feelings go away? Many, many times, we split. We're done. I'm out the door. Love is temporary based on what I feel in the moment. 
but we see the Christian de definition of love in the actions of Jesus. So I've told you that real love is thankfulness and devotion and worship of God, and then also a deep concern for the well-being of others. And the second part of our verse, if you want to go ahead and put it back up there, oh, it's already there, kind of, kind of fills this out. It says, as Christ loved us and did what? And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so he gave himself up for us. He saw us and knew that we were broken and without God, that we were lost, that our souls were darkened, and that we lived futile lives. We're born, we wake up, we do some work, have a little bit of fun, and then we die. And because we're disconnected from God when we die, the future isn't happy. And so God looked at us, and he knew we were in trouble, and he also knew to make the difference. Jesus knew that he could make the difference in us. He was so concerned for our well-being that he went to the cross. Like, he gave up everything. He knew that we needed a sacrifice, that we needed atonement with God. And he became that sacrifice. We were broken and enslaved, and he freed us. And in doing so, it says that he was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we saw the love of neighbor, and now we see that, yes, his, affection, his, his affections affected us. Yes, his love was for us, but they were also consistent with his love for the Father. Like what he did, he did not just to save us, but as worship towards God. He loved us. He loved God. His entire life was driven by those things. And so to those of us who know Jesus, who call ourselves God's children, Walk in love. Like that's the application of this text. That's what we're called to. When we're tempted towards anger this week, because someone does us wrong, walk in love. When we feel selfishness gripping our heart, remember, walk in love. Imitate God. This is the heart of your practice and your religion. Again, I can't give you like five points to do this week because it's going to be different for every one of you. Some of you, your work is going to require you, your place of work is going to require you to walk in love this week. For some of you, your marriage is going to feel like a burden and you're going to have to walk in love. Your calling is towards compassion. That's for those of you who know Jesus, who consider you a child. But I don't want to take for granted that everybody in this room knows Christ. Um, I've not sat down and had deep conversations with every one of you, so I don't know what you think about when you lie awake in your bed at night. And some of you, as you examine yourself, you may think, you know what, I, I'm not a follower of God. I'm still in my sins. I'm not transformed. I'm still stuck. 
I've just said how much God loves his children. And if you think of yourself in that place, you may think, well, God doesn't love me. I'm not one of his children. And just in closing, I kind of want to I want to read a verse that sums up God's posture towards you. Um, to set the scene, Jesus is preparing to go to his death, and he stands and looks at Jerusalem from a hill, and he laments over those in the city that have rebelled against him. This is out of Luke 13, verse 34. It should appear. These are the words of Jesus. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Do you hear the heart of Jesus here? For those of us who see ourselves as far off, who see ourselves not as the children of God, like, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, well, then just take off. He looks at you and he says, it's, it, now we have not the father language, but a motherly language. I wish that I could just scoop you up. I wish that I could protect you. I wish that you would let me help you, but you won't have it. You keep running. The only thing that keeps us out of God's family is us. Christ has made a way for you. You may not see yourself as a child of God. You may have kicked back against him. You may have insisted on living your own life, your own way, but God still yearns to draw you near. And so lay down your arms call out to him. Just stop fighting. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we don't know what love is.